Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, IndyCar fans. This is Nathan Brown, your Motorsports Insider with the Indianapolis Star, here for this week's edition of IndyCar Weekly. Joined, as always, uh, Meyer Schenk Racing, full-time driver uh, for the number 60 Honda, Jack Harvey. Uh, Jack, we were just talking a little bit off-pod um, how it, it was a great weekend to be spent at the racetrack, but um, still feels good to be back for a couple of days quick, uh, before we both head off to, to St. Pete. Oh, big time, mate. And, you know, I was just saying, uh, so everyone can hear it. I know we've had a lot of time at home, but, uh, as soon as you start traveling, mate, all the euphoria of traveling, you know, the stress of it, et cetera, you know, obviously such a busy weekend with it only being a two day event. There's always something nice, mate, no matter how many times I've been at home, something great about this coming back Sunday night to my own bed, lying in a bit yesterday. It's great. Sure is. Um, well, uh, quite, as you mentioned, quite the busy weekend, um, not only with just two days of on-track action with two practices qualifying and then, of course, a race on Sunday, but um, a busy wild one on track there in that race will break down everything between the uh, lap one crash that uh, ended the days of a couple big names in the field. Um, Some of the the strategy that went into play on Sunday, how Jack and and Meyer Shank racing did on Sunday, as well as looking ahead a little bit to Sunday's race at St. Pete. Uh, So I guess maybe just a good way to start Jack. I know we talked a lot the last podcast about, um, about all the testing that's happened these last couple of weeks leading up to the season. But when you get into the car for an actual race weekend, does that feel, still feel a little different um, in some ways, even if it's just a practice compared to um, just the sensation that you get for, for stepping into the car on a, say a, a test day at IMS? Uh, it's made for sure. You know, when you go to a practice day, you know, you can, build up to it you know you've got time uh somehow we always feel like we run out of time at the end of the day but certainly starting the day you know you've got you know five sets of tires and probably more than seven hours of like on track time to gradually build into it and then you come to barber the first race and suddenly like it's upon you you know everything that you've been practicing to do uh, in the car is suddenly like now it's go time so um I think if you look at the lap count, I would guess most cars maybe did somewhere between 12 and probably what, 19 laps in practice one at Barber ish, mm-hmm. I would guess. And uh, <clears throat> that's always what's so funny about the race is people forget that I would say the most throughout any of our testing, even Barber included, that we've gone on one set of tires and it, at one run is probably eight laps. So the first time we knew what the tire was going to do in the race was actually in the race. Uh, and I always think that's kind of a funny, um, <clears throat> a funny thing, you know, that even, you know, when we go winter testing, or, or, no, every test is always a, you know, we'll get one long run in, see what the tire does. And then before the end of the day comes and you're like, oh, we never got that run in. <laughs> yeah, it's always, uh, it's always just a, a time management battle, I always think. How... I know it seems like, um, and maybe this has been the case for a little while, but always just seems to me like 45 minutes for practice just seems fairly short. Um, how, I mean, how much of that time are you guys, cause you guys have to do, you know, an install lap, particularly you just start the day off. So when you, you run that lap, you come back, you make sure everything's set. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, how you're running, you know, 12, 15 laps, how much are you guys really getting 
uh, out of those practices um, and how much, uh, how much are you guys, I imagine really having to rely on, particularly with Barber, the off season testing that you guys um, did at least once at, at Barber Motorsports Park leading into the season? Well, what's tough about the short weekends, mate, honestly, is that it puts so much emphasis on just having to start the weekend well. Because even if you want to make a lot of changes, sometimes, like even at Barber on, on the first day, there wasn't that much time, you know, to even make the, the actual total setup changes. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that's why on the start of the start of Saturday, you know, getting through practice one without any big hiccups, you know, certainly no crashes if you could help it, uh, you know, same in practice too, because if you had a big wreck in FP1, you might not have even got out for practice two or practice two for qualifying, you know, so when the weekend comes at you just that fast, it just puts all the emphasis on making sure that, you know, for example, that November test did go well and that we unload with our baseline car and are quite happy, you know, at least in a happier side of the swingometer than being unhappy and I think you saw it I mean I'm not even sure why I was surprised but I thought the lap times at Barber were so close you know so competitive this year and everyone keeps saying and I think even you know Graham Rahal was quoted as saying you know he thought this was a golden era you know of IndyCar racing and you kind of can't help but agree with him in that sense because all the teams are so competitive right now uh, so many great drivers there's just not time to catch up if your weekend doesn't start off well. And, you know, it's 45 minutes, enough time. I mean, I think there's an argument for how they did it last year when it was like one 90-minute session, two 45-minute sessions. Um, I don't mind which, however they want to do it, but you kind of, regardless, that that's why we put so much effort into the off-season, analysing so much data and really having to unload well because there isn't time to recover mate especially on those short weekends so it's uh, it makes it really hard for sure i wonder if and i haven't talked to a a race promoter to know or or i guess i have a lot to do with indycar too but i almost wonder um you know when you talk about two 45 minute sessions compared to one 90 minute session i wonder if that has something to do maybe with uh maybe the fact that we were able to make this, I don't know, maybe for the first time since 2019, I have to think back over the race weekends, but this race weekend felt considerably more normal. And that was because you had all this different on track action. It was stressed. I know two days still felt probably pretty short for you guys, but I mean, I just noticed, uh, granted it was the first non IMS, uh, road course venue that I had been to while on this beat, but it was just really cool. Um, driving up to the media Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And you just, you see the fans that are there, the campers, the tents, all the people, you know, set up with their chairs on the Hills, um, just waiting to rock, watch like, you know, six, seven hours worth of racing. And so I have to wonder if maybe in some way for the folks that are planning things, when you guys have two 45 minute sessions that kind of helps sprinkle the indie car on track content throughout the day on Saturday. So that, um, you know, in between all the indie pro 2000 and indie lights and USF 2000 races, maybe that has something to do with it in some way of just kind of, kind of trying to stretch out the content as much as possible for the fans that are there because we were able to have close to, to 20,000 fans uh, back up Barber this weekend, which was really cool. Oh, I thought it was great seeing people. I think some of these road courses, it's, it's always so fun when <clears throat> you see people just on the on the banking, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I think they're Road America, Mid-Ohio, Indy. You know, it's always fun when you just get to actually see people, uh, you know, with, with their little tents and they've got their coolers and everything. And that's just great. You know, I, I think that's... that pureness of racing is what we all love as as fans and i agree with you i think this is uh, the first time in a long time it's the weekend has felt more normal you know at least certainly more what we're used to should we say at least and 
I think a lot of that from from our side is that Friday was like a full prep day. You know, we had a, a bunch of media requi- uh, requirements. We had, you know, meetings with teams. And that just seems like a normal prep day for us. Therefore, when you roll into Saturday, you're like, oh, okay, now we feel really ready. Where last year, our prep day was, you know, the hour that we had before practice. Uh, <laughs> so I do think in, in a lot of ways, it did feel like a much more, you can't see me, but I'm putting my fingers in the air like normal, you know, style weekend, uh, albeit a short weekend and a high tempoed weekend. And I think when I look back now to when we, you know, would arrive Thursday, you know, spend all day Thursday prepping, you know, two practices Friday, practice qualify Saturday, warm up very Sunday. I mean, they felt busy, you know, so kind of condensing that track time uh, certainly makes it even harder. But I thought, in so many ways, it was so great just being an IndyCar race again, you know, with fans, uh, feeling that energy, feeling that atmosphere, even kind of getting stuck in traffic on the way out. It was just a nice feeling, you know, all them uh, kind of goofy things, but it was uh, it was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I will go through a quick uh, rundown of how the weekend went. As uh, we mentioned, two practices and one qualifying session on Saturday with the race on Sunday. Uh, in that first practice session, uh, Alex Pillow led things um, with the fastest lap time. Uh, I think it was already quicker at that point than Sebastian Bourdais' qualifying record that he set back in 2016 that I believe was a, a 1066. Alex already um, and, and multiple people in this session, I remember, already dipped under that record mark. And you could tell, I mean, we were expecting it because of the repave that was done in this track either in 2019 or 2020 um so this was the first time that you guys had been back there since then we were expecting faster speeds but we certainly saw it um alex and colton with some really fast times in that first session um alexander rossi topping the second one um at uh 106.0797 uh kind of a precursor of how quick you guys were going to go in qualifying. And then Paddle Award goes and drops an unbelievable lap of 105. Uh, I think it was 105.5 was his fastest lap during qualifying, ultimately qualified with a time of 105.8479, just ahead of Rossi. Um, you, Jack, were there on uh, the inside of row six. How did you feel like qualifying ultimately went for you guys? I thought quality went okay. Um, you know, I think before we went out, <clears throat> I didn't think we quite had the pace to be in the Firestone Fast 6 this weekend, uh, to be truthful. I hoped that we would be somewhere between like 6th and 8th. And when I looked down and saw what time I did in Q2, I was like, oh, that's a that's a good lap. You know, I certainly felt like we had put in a good lap and... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it just wasn't enough to to transfer and ended up only being P11. And I think, again, it just shows you how tight it is this year. Um, you know, I think in the end of Q2, I mean, I think Alexander was sixth. Uh, you know, Colton ended up qualifying uh, ninth, I think, me uh, 11. So I think that's the first time in a long time that Andre Autosports only had one car in the in the top six so um you know maybe a little bit of a challenging weekend for us as a uh, as a team but um again i, I thought we had a, a decent first qualifying of the year you know and it's just obviously looking to build on but i i was was i surprised at the times i thought the you know the, the mid 65 pace was that's rapid you know anyone who was in that kind of realm i thought was incredibly quick uh certainly we didn't have that pace but then you look back at you know where it was the year before and and whatnot and I mean that track pavement has uh, certainly been improved significantly so that was a really good job by everybody at Barber Motorsports Park for that. And I know um, I know it also then and and we can talk about this a little bit more once we get to the race but um, one thing that a lot of drivers talked about both after practice and um, and after the race was with that speed I don't think people quite realize maybe how few, you know, true passing zones there are on this track. And then when you 
bump up those speeds uh, another you know couple miles an hour you're cutting you know a, a, a second or so at least off of your lap times it's just making it that much harder to pass i i can certainly imagine the thing you mentioned, um about qualifying that was unique you mentioned you know only one andretti car uh in the fast six it was a really unique group and it was something that we saw play out a little bit in the race too where i guess you know maybe we should have kind of uh foreseen how ganassi was going to dominate the race in lots of ways by how they performed in qualifying certainly but you're right there are three chip ganassi racing cars in that fast six between uh alex polo in third scott dixon in fifth and marcus erickson in sixth and then you only had one Penske car and Will Power in fourth, one Andretti car and Alexander Rossi in second. And then, uh, of course, Pato Award taking the pole for Aaron McLaren SP um, was really unique. Uh, and we saw that kind of play out later on with uh, with how the race in the top 10 actually panned out. Um, excuse my dog there in the background. Um <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting qualifying session. And I think that goes back a little bit to what you were talking about just with this golden era of IndyCar. I mean, it's so cool to have four different teams represented in that Firestone Fast Six. I think eventually we had um, maybe eight teams represented in the top 10 from the race. Uh, I mean, when you're, you're watching the the formula one race, you know, I, I had a chance to watch a little bit of it on Sunday in the morning as I was getting ready, um, to head to the track, but you just don't see that type of parody in any other series, whether it's NASCAR or formula one or anything else. And I think, you know, we've been talking about that so much, um, coming into this season. And I just think it was really cool to see that actually play out in a race rather than just, you know, be this storyline that was talked about and then kind of, you know, dropped off or ignored if say we'd had, uh, you know, three Penske's, three Andretti's, three Ganassi's, and then, you know, uh, an Aaron McLaren SP car say in the top 10, it was, uh, it was totally different from that. Um, and I, I just thought that was maybe, beyond the the pole sitter or the race winner, just something that really stood out to me from this weekend. Yeah, for sure. I think you know, we all chatted about how competitive it looked like the season was going to be, how many great drivers there are, you know, how many great teams there are. And I actually went to Barber and it was, you know, extremely tight, you know, in terms of just like across the whole field. But then you actually look at the breakdown and how many teams are being well represented. Uh, I think it's going to be like that every weekend, mate. You know, I don't see any reason why it, it sort of wouldn't be. And I think Alex was obviously quickest in the first practice session. So that was a sign of good things to come for him. Um, you know, but seeing how quick, you know, Ganassi were in general, I think you might have that, like, you know, one weekend, obviously optimistically. And, you know, we're hoping that Andretti and Maya Shank are going to be quick one weekend. And then probably one week and it's going to be Team Penske and then it's just going to rotate. But I think it's so competitive right now that what we used to define as being off the pace, you know, may have been a tenth or two tenths, where this year it's like a half a tenth. You know, it's just all those margins are a bit tighter. You know, so if you do have an advantage one weekend, it's still only going to be small. There's just going to be more cars that are close. So, um I think it's great when you when you get to see that, and you know, it was. I, I read Graham's comments, and I, I I agree with him. You know, I, I do think this is a you know fantastic period of IndyCar racing, which you know I'm, it makes me happy just to be a part of it. It also makes me really determined to go and have great success this year. You know, so that if we are successful, you can you know hang a a feather in your cap and go. Well, actually, that was a great year of racing as well, and we had and we had a great year. So. I think every weekend you're going to see different teams maybe be at a slightly sharper end or look like they've got slightly quicker cars, but I think it's going to be this competitive all year long. And honestly, when you start looking at the list, I mean, just to be in the top, like the top, like 18 or 20 or whatever you want to call it is incredibly hard. You know I mean? It's going to take effort all season long to be staying in the top 10. That's for sure. Yeah. 
Well, um, let's get into this race. It was, um, it was a, <laughs> just, uh, a, a weird, weird thing to happen in lap one, you know, after we have had all this build up for almost six months, um, we were even, I mean, the folk, the handful of us that were in the media center, we were watching, um, they were, they were messing with the TVs and um, a little bit of chaos there as it was. We only had two TVs to watch off of. And so the the TV that had the live race broadcast was actually on the other side of the room from where I was sitting. And I was, you know, trying to fumble around to get uh, a Peacock um, window up on my computer so I could watch it a little bit easier, even though I knew it was going to be a little bit delayed just with, with how streaming does work. Um, and all of a sudden we look over on the TV and there's cars flying everywhere. Uh, and it took us a while to figure out exactly what happened. Um, as it was Joseph Newgarden, he you know, mentioned a little bit on the race broadcast that, um, I don't know if he got loose and that was why he dipped into the grass or if he just put, you know, a, one or two of his wheels into the grass and that kind of set everything off, but whatever happened, um, he got, he got way too loose and kind of midway through that first lap of the race. And then, um, you know, when he's starting, I think he was starting eighth, if I remember right. I mean, something like that is just why qualifying is so immensely important for you guys. I know we hear people talk about it every single race, but you wouldn't even think that starting like 10th or for your case, 11th would necessarily be a, a bad spot and maybe a place where something like that could happen. But I, I'm sure you had a, a pretty good vantage point. Tell me, take me through uh, and our listeners through a little bit of how you saw that um, lap one crash unfold. Well, I actually just posted something uh, about an hour ago with why we do so much reaction training in the off season and what that means when you're in the car, decision-making and being able to just very quickly react to what you see. Uh, I remember coming up, I'd gone, you know, me and Scott McLaughlin would gone, you know, side by side through turn one. And then I have a, a good position to stay ahead of him on the exit of turn three, went up over the hill four and just naturally the car kind of drifts to the left-hand side of the track. I remember being very close to Colton Herter. And then the next thing I saw was dirt, some grass, and at that point, you have no idea. You know, maybe a car's just dropped a wheel. I didn't know the severity as to which Joseph had lost it until I kind of realized that I was closely catching up to Colton, who had obviously had to lift to avoid it. And then the next thing I saw is a sideways Joseph Newgarden. And people have to remember that as you come up and over that hill, it's it's blind. You know, you, you get into a crest and you're not sure what's coming. So to have that happen there uh, is one of the probably the worst places. Uh, you know, a barber that you could have that kind of crash because I was just thinking, oh my God, I need to try and get around it as quickly as possible. I lifted a little, went around the, uh, you know, the right-hand side and managed to get through. But then I was looking at there was that gap there. You know, people also have to remember that Joseph's car was on a trajectory path that a half a second later is covering half the racetrack, you know, if not more. So then the more cars try and get through there, the more people have to lift you know, try and avoid it. And it ends up just being carnage, mate. Uh, you know, and I saw Renus posted a picture today that, you know, from the front, his car is sideways too. Like how he was able to get through it. Uh, you know, sometimes you just, you just say, thank you. You know, you're like, not sure how I did it, but I'm just grateful that we did. Um, and again, you know, it happens all the time. I watched the, I watched the race back uh, yesterday and it literally looks like he just, he got loose, you know, coming over the hill in the dirty air. Uh, just touched the grass a little bit and that was enough maybe on cold tires just to, uh, you know, turn the car around. But, um, you know, I can tell you from experience as well that, you know, when you're sideways or facing, you know, that many cars coming at you, Ben, in mind, that's 140 miles an hour plus, if not probably closer to 150 for a lot of people. It's not a super fun place to be, you know, it's not, um, it's, it's wild, you know, and for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, Ryan Hunter A posted some really great, uh, footage of why we have the halo this year or last year as well but like why they have the screen and I'm sure that 
but I'm grateful for it because I'm pretty sure that that may have saved Ryan Hunter Ray's life. Just the, the way that one of the tires came up and hit the cock, uh, cockpit and but also hit the screen and then deflected off. That's why IndyCar's taking such a, you know, innovative approach to safety as well. So that when we get into one of these accidents, that everyone walks away safely. Um, but as a wild start to the year, man, that's for sure. Yeah, it was. I don't know that every that anyone really realized that Ryan was, you know, that close to anything that that truly potentially tragic happening um, until he posted the. I mean, certainly, I didn't, you know, and I, I chatted yeah. to uh, some of his team after the race, and I saw his car, you know, missing a front wing, and you know, things like that, and you're like, oh, I wonder if maybe he just got you know, caught up in it, but they don't realize the severity of it until you saw it after. And that was scary, mate, honestly. It was, yeah. I mean, it was, he, for, to kind of point or paint the picture a little bit for those that may have forgotten, I, I think he was, when Joseph got, you know, totally sideways in the middle of the track, I think if I remember right, Ryan's car was the one that base, I mean, I guess you would probably say, in in road car terms he was basically the one that t-boned him for lack of a better way to put it um ryan i can't remember ryan was starting uh 17th so he was i guess probably like four or five rows back from joseph at that point so it was enough time for joseph not only to get loose but to really truly start spinning um and ryan was just you know the happened to be the unlucky person that when everyone is trying to go different ways to avoid it, the best way I can, I can imagine it is probably the line that he picked to try and avoid things just happened to be the place where Joseph was when you got, you guys have all that dirt coming up and everything. Um, but really scary, scary stuff uh, that he posted there on Twitter yesterday. Go find it if you haven't already taken a look at it, but basically one of Joseph's wheels. And I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head. It might've been his right front. Maybe um, looks like it just makes absolutely square contact with um, the left front side of the arrow screen. Um, and you have to wonder, uh, you know, what might have happened. I guess it would have been two years ago if, if we have an accident like that, that doesn't, I mean, it is as wild as it was, for Joseph Newgarden to be the one um, to cause it, you know, a driver who we think of as just not making mistakes like that too often. It wasn't like the wildest thing to happen <laughs> beyond it happening, I guess, maybe in, in lap one in an IndyCar race. But to think of how how bad that accident could have been if you guys didn't have those aero screens, it was certainly a, another moment to thank the folks over IndyCar, Jay Fry, the folks at uh Delara and elsewhere that that helped construct those um and really put IndyCar at the the forefront of uh safety development and in open wheel racing and really in, in racing in general um well let's go um so so that happened on lap one that takes out Joseph uh takes out Ryan Colton and and Felix had to make some massive repairs on their cars um, I think Max Chilton had to go put on brand new tires as did Renus. And I'll, I'll just say it now for Renus to, to have to drop to the back of the field because of the repairs that they did on his car, um, and the penalty that he got from race control and for him to wind up sixth in that race might've been outside of, of Alex, maybe one of the best drives of the day. Um, it was wild to see his i know you know maybe we weren't really focusing on him too much because of all the exciting action that was happening up in the the top two or three guys top two three four guys in the race um but to see him make it up to six um props to him on on our salvaging what could have been a, a disastrous day for him um the the next thing i wanted to ask about i know you guys made three stops in the race one of the biggest takeaways that we had um after this race is is looking at who decided to take a little bit of a gamble and, and go with two stops. Um, I know traditionally at this race length, this is from, you know, pretty much everyone that I've talked to um, almost a, a no brainer three stop race for you guys. It just would, I think with almost an entire green flag run 
would just have to be would have to mean that you guys are just running too slow uh, to do the the proper fuel saving to make it a two stopper. Did you guys have any sort of conversations on your own radio, or or did you think about it maybe in your own mind when you're in the race on whether there was a, a choice there or a thought there to to drop it to two instead of three? Mm, not really, mate. Not for us. We uh, we started on used reds. Uh, the goal was very much geared around three stop strategy for us on that day. Um, mm. One thing to for everyone to consider is. I know we've talked about the track repaving and it made it so much quicker, but in some ways it almost like made fuel consumption worse, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because you're, you're on the, on the throttle pedal, you know, for so long now, uh, which is kind of one of them things you don't really consider it. And I hadn't really considered it until our strategy meeting. And I think trying to do a two stopper would have required <clears throat> so much yellow. Like I can totally see why some people tried it, especially after, uh, you know, Jimmy's spin, but um, I don't think it was on our our radar. And if if we if you were going to, you certainly wouldn't have started on news reds uh, like we did. So our strategy on that day, you know, revolved around news reds, short spin, and then try and just undercut as much as you could have, really. And then you know, Jimmy's spin definitely kind of paid heed, you know, to a little bit of that. And you know, in, in some ways, there's a little bit of a a leveler. I think if there had been a little bit more yellow, like mid race, I think the two stopper would have worked out, you know, pretty well. Uh, but in order to get to that fuel number, that was a an extremely aggressive save that weekend. Uh, you know, sometimes it's worse than others, but it wasn't high on our on our list. I think we we're in a in a good spot to try and you know undercut a little, but I don't think we needed to you know completely throw every piece of you know uh gambling chips that we had on on the two stopper and i I don't think just from talking to the team if what was going to happen we also didn't know what was going to happen with tires you know as i mentioned you know before and i don't know if anyone really caught it but in warm-up you know very few people actually did a long red run you know so i think some people were nervous about how the red tires were going to hold up um, you know, into two stop. I mean, you've got to make at least one of them last a long time. Um, so two stopping definitely wasn't on our radar. But actually, in 2019, we did two stop. Oh, you know, and it worked out. You know, nearly was going to work out very well until I got a drive through penalty for speeding the pit lane. But uh, by the by, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think some years, some years it can work. Uh, I think since the uh, repaving, I'm not sure that uh, two stopping and in Barber is the uh, hot ticket anymore. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, as you say that to just, I mean, I guess to see how well it worked out, at least for some teams, I mean, with, with Alex and, and Will and Dixon um, there on the podium, able to make two stops work. I had, I have to say, I was kind of in the same minds, you know, when I, I know that the strategy that, uh, that Pato and, and Alex were on in particular going going three instead of two kind of expected at some point, you know, that maybe Pato would be able to get a little bit closer down the stretch, even as, as hard as it is, I know to pass on that track, given how much quicker it has gotten um, after the repave. I I was really in some ways almost expecting maybe Pato to, <laughs> to find himself in kind of a reverse situation of road America race two last year, where, um, you know, he's, he was in road America race in the lead and trying to defend Felix and Felix just was able to be a little bit more aggressive. Um, I, I was wondering if something like that in the flip side was going to pay off and maybe he was going to be able to get around, say someone like Alex. Um, but Alex, I mean, will, will set it after the race. I think he was one that maybe expressed it best that will was watching how aggressive, Alex was able to be in that first stint. I think they went, I want to say like 31 or 32 laps um, before they pitted and will maybe around like, say like lap 20 or so, I think he was trailing Alex and was remarking at how, how fast they were going and how aggressive he was still able to be. And he just assumed that they were doing three stops because he was running in a way that you would assume that he 
who was, you know, driving, driving in that manner was not going to be in a fuel saving mode, but, um, mm. what was those Ganassi cars had, um, had a little bit, something extra on Sunday. Uh, and, and Alex was able to, um, to hold, hold off those two legends of the series between Will Power and Scott Dixon off, um, Will in particular, I think he got within four tenths of a second there at the very end. But I think he even mentioned because he was having to fuel save as well there, um, being on a two-stop strategy, he, he wasn't able to use the that push to pass, um, bank too much that he had. I know people tried to make a big deal of, you know, why wasn't he more aggressive in the, the closing laps, given how much push to pass he still had left, but you, you know, that obviously I know uses up so much of, of your guys's fuel and, you know, had he done that, he might've run out of, run out of gas and, uh, not even made it to the end of the race. So props, props for Alex, um, for the, the ride that he put together on Sunday. I know you tweeted, I, I don't have it on, on hand, but I know you said that, um, I think I saw post race. We're really happy to see someone like him be able to get their first win. Um, if it, if it wasn't going to be you, um, kind of take me through a little bit of, just kind of your thoughts on, on Alex's performance and to, for the series in general, to, to get another, um, race winner in the books. Oh, well, I think, yeah, Alex is a, he's an incredibly nice guy. Uh, I think you'll, I've known him for, I actually haven't known him directly, you know, until he came to IndyCar, but I've known who he is, you know, for a long time. Uh, and although our careers are only just passing, uh, it's nice that it's passing at the highest, highest level in IndyCar racing. If anyone who knows him understands what an incredible driver he is and everything that he's done, you know, up to IndyCar. And I have a lot of respect for people like that. And then you actually talk to him and he's a very nice guy as well. You know, his uh, his whole family seemed very nice. So when we're not going to have a, you know, a winning weekend, I remember I asked the team, you know, after we uh, stopped, I said, okay, what was the finishing order? And certainly was happy to hear that Alex had won the race. Um, clearly, they had some incredible speed because as I was watching the race, after I, I heard uh, Will's comments about that, and they must have just been absolutely flying because, you know, whenever you're saving fuel, there's always an element of losing a little bit of speed and outright lap time because naturally you're, you know, lifting off the throttle before you get to the corner but uh you know to hear someone as you know rapid as willpower even turn around and say man they i thought they were doing a different strategy to us you know um and the pace that they had while doing that you know is pretty eye-opening really so um yeah i mean i was just i was really happy for for him um you know i don't really know too many people at you know ganassi racing but I think they've taken a big step over the off season as well. So uh, it's already they're a great team who look like they're starting 2021 in, you know, clearly a very strong and competitive way, which could be bad news for the rest of us. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, truthfully, I think Alex was just showing everybody in IndyCar what people who don't know him, what he can achieve. And for the people that do know him, probably just waiting for him to do it. Yeah, it was cool kind of from my perspective um, to see him take advantage of that opportunity so quickly. I mean, we've seen basically since Dario Franchitti retired after the, the 2013 IndyCar season, we've seen Ganassi for eight years now trying to fill um, a consistent race winner in that number 10 seat alongside Scott Dixon. And it's been, it's been incredible to see, to see and think that the, the best, essentially the best portion of Scott's career has come over those last eight years, you know, with championships in, in 2013, which was Dario's last season, but he, you know, wasn't nearly to the level that Dario had been in recent years. Scott wins a championship in 13, 15, 18, and 20. Um, and at the same time, uh, I think Tony won the finale in 2014 in Fontana in that number 10 car. And then Felix won a race, won that Road America race two race a year ago. Um, but to think of all the wins that Scott Dixon has piled up 
in recent years. And, and the fact that up until Sunday, only two drivers had won in, uh, in that, what I guess what a lot of people would probably say is the, you know, maybe the quote unquote number two car, at least in terms of notoriety for that team, um, was, was wild. And so it was cool to see someone like him be able to take advantage of that opportunity so quickly. We knew from moments last year that he had some, you know, had good amounts of speed when he could put together a good race um, at a team like Coin, but it just wasn't happening quite as frequently as, you know, someone who you would hope, you know, the, the driver that, you know, would take advantage of an opportunity like that would, you know, maybe perform halfway decent at coin and then get to Ganassi and just like explode on the scene, scene and, and shine. And Ganassi hadn't been able to find someone to do something like that for a couple of years. And it certainly looks at least at the start through one race that, that Alex might be the guy to, to do that. So cool for them. Cool for that team. As you mentioned, uh, maybe a little worrisome uh, for the rest of the paddock to see a team like Ganassi who performed out of the gate so strong last year at winning the first four races of the season to, to go and win race one. Uh, but St. Pete has not necessarily been a great track for them in the grand scheme of things. We'll get to St. Pete here in a second. Um, so we'll see if that, that translates. Uh, but quickly before we go, I, I mean, you mentioned you guys felt like you were, you maybe didn't quite have everything there on Sunday. Um, how do you, you know, how do you um, analyze a, a season opener finish, you know, starting 11th, finishing 11th? I know you want to make up spots, obviously, from where you start, but compared to how you guys started the year last year, um, I don't know where it was at, that you guys finished at Texas. I have it right here. I guess it was, it was what, 16th. So a better, a better way to start off the season than you guys did a year ago. I know that, you know, in, in terms of results, uh, at least rough start to 2020 was maybe what held you guys back in terms of not quite being able to crack into the top 10 in points. So when you finish 11th, even if it's not everything that you wanted to get out of a race weekend, does that still leave you maybe somewhat satisfied or, or, or kind of, how do you, how did you leave Alabama feeling? I left feeling fine, mate, you know, uh, certainly it wasn't the, the result we were going to Alabama looking for. Uh, it's probably fair to say, but I do remember how bad last year started. Uh, you know, it wasn't just one race, it was four races, uh, where we walked out with, you know, practically nothing. So I think the biggest confusion for us leaving and looking back on the weekend was what happened on our red tire pace. I would say traditionally our red pace has been a little bit better than our black pace. Uh, and this weekend it was complete flop, you know, in reverse. And I think our strategy would have worked out really well if we'd had some pace on our reds uh and that's a really unusual uncharacteristic trait for the number 60 all nation series xm honda machine so um i think just trying to understand that and why it happened um certainly it wasn't on our radar that it was going to be an issue to the severity that it was so again i think the, if i'm putting my you know optimistic and positive hat on for a second um you know i look at it and go great we you know we finished 11th but that certainly wasn't the best we could have done on that day you know if things had gone uh differently or gone another way so yeah i mean i feel you know like on the whole our pit stops were great you know i thought the the guys did fantastic on pit lane all day uh you know i was pretty happy with how i drove um you know and some of the things that we can't control didn't exactly play in our favor and there's a few areas and areas that we can control that we need to do better at so it's nice to leave a weekend like that going okay we don't want to be 11th obviously but it's not like we were 11th and that was the best we could do you know i felt like there's a lot more low-hanging fruit out there just for us to grab i think saint pete is a is a race that we're excited about i think clearly we had pace there last year qualified fifth and was running well before that little incident with james so, yeah, I think we just want to we just want to start the season well, mate. <clears throat> you know, I think if you get to Indy 
you know, and we've just put a ton of points on the board. Uh, you know, hopefully we get back in the top 10. And, you know, truthfully, we, we want to be the one, you know, pushing for wins, you know, and we want to be talking about the end of the weekend. Oh, the, you know, the MyShank racing car looks so fast on, you know, two-stop, three-stop, any mass stops. You know, we just want the car to be uh, quick and want to drive well. You know, want everyone to continue on this positive, you know, path that we've started down. And, you know, if we just take it one race at a time, mate. But, you know, I think I've said to you before, you know, maybe at content day that, not necessarily that it's become a team motto, but I mean, people have to win these races every weekend. So why not us? Mm-hmm. It's a great way to look at it. Well, let's, let's dive into St. Pete a little bit. As you mentioned, that was looked like whether it was going to be you guys or um, any one of the five drivers from Andretti Autosport um, looked like uh, likely culprits to, to win that race last year. And it was just, uh, in the middle of the race, just one uh, odd occurrence after another between Rossi losing control. I can't even remember exactly what happened with Colton, but I know he was either leading the race or up near toward the front and and fell off. You had, as you mentioned, uh, an incident where James, um, you know, kind of took you guys out and, and that took out two Andretti cars. Marco had, um, an incident where he cut a tire, I think, in contact with the Kumasato and that left him out of the race and eventually left him on the outside looking in, in terms of, um, the, uh, the, um, million dollars that, that was on the line there for folks near the bottom of the, the paddock. But, um, what did you guys feel going into that race last year that was, um, made those Andretti cars so competitive in particular, because I don't, I have to go back and look and check and see, but I don't know that it's been a track that at least in the last handful of years has been one where Andretti has won on. I know James won in, in 13, um, Joseph won, I think maybe like three out of three out of the last four five years, Sebastian Bourdais has a couple wins in there. I know Montoya won a couple. So um, for as dominant as you guys look like, even if uh, no Andretti or Meyershank cars ended up winning, um, what positivity did you take away from that race last year? I think a lot of our testing, you know, when it was at Sebring or, you know, places like that is geared around, street courses uh yeah that's where we did a lot of our testing again this year you know so perhaps just that's where the emphasis was and you know where we can take the most amount of um uh the things that we learn on track and roll them into an actual race weekend i think everybody you know the team you know my shank racing but also andretti also sport left uh that weekend feeling clearly very um happy about the pace that we showed but good to they don't think anybody really had a good result you know i don't think any of the cars really had a good result you know on that day and that was extremely frustrating for everybody you know that being said you can leave that in 2020 you know we're coming now to 21 honestly just happy that the car was fast last year uh just because it was fast last year obviously doesn't mean it's going to be you know too fast this year but you know the guys and girls that my Shank Racing and Andrea Autosport are working really hard to be able to go there with that same level of performance, same level of competitiveness, and hopefully get the end results um, to go along with that. And, you know, just from, from my side, I thought that St. Pete about some of the past season last year, you know, kind of wrong place, wrong time, you know, kind of out of our out of our control but you know we're coming back here now another year's more experience in my side another year's more mature about some things and honestly just happy to be back on track uh you know this is a this is a busy stretch you know with um you know barber last weekend st peter's coming weekend and a double header in uh, texas you know it's, it's a busy time you know but we, but we love it uh you know three different types of tracks and honestly you don't see any reason why we can't leave st Pete and actually have had a a really great result. You mentioned that's a, it's a something that I hadn't really thought too much about up until uh, maybe maybe it was something that came to my mind on my drive back from Alabama yesterday. Um, 
about a, a cool way to start the season that doesn't always necessarily pan out this way that the three race weekends of the year put you guys on basically the three disciplines of IndyCar um, with a, an oval, a street course and a road course. So you maybe after those first four races, you kind of have a chance to see it aggregate a little bit about, you know, where, where everyone stands when you put everything that IndyCar brings as far as all the different types of tracks and races together. Um, I think it might provide a, a fairly decent snapshot of what the championship looks like. I know people don't really like talking to, and frankly, I certainly like don't, don't like getting into it too deep, but if um, I think maybe at that point, we'll at least have a, a good idea of who the best, you know, you know, five cars are or 10 cars are, um, you know, whether you're leading the championship after the first four races, I don't know is necessarily that big of a deal, but I think it'll, will be, as you say, a, a really good indicator of who's fairly strong um, and who's got a lot to work on before we, you know, have a, another race at IMS on the road course and then a double points race at 500. And then you have a, a double header at Detroit and that's already basically your halfway point in the season at that point. So it will be, um, will be really cool to see where things stand here. And, uh, I guess it'd be about 10 days or so from now, once we get to the end of Texas, um, one, maybe one more thing to, to wrap all this up between Barber and St. Pete. Um, what is that turnaround like when, I mean, you guys, you, you get back late Sunday, um, you guys have on track stuff on, on Friday. So you guys probably have to get down there on Thursday. Um, how much prep are you guys able to do before, um, arriving at the track? Like, do you guys have like a, both a debrief from Barber and then, a you know, a meeting or a series of meetings to prep for St. Pete, maybe kind of take me and the listeners through a little bit of when you have a back-to-back race weekends like that, what, um, what the preparation process is like. Sure. Uh, yeah. When we, we got back pretty late on Sunday night, as I mentioned earlier, it was just great to be able to, you know, sleep an hour in bed, uh, Sunday, wake up Monday, you know, and honestly have like a bit of a, uh, like a rest day, really just a bit of a breather, you know, try and gather my thoughts, on um you know the weekend you know the good the bad the ugly you know etc but then you know starting tuesday it was immediately i was you know back in the gym today uh you know i did my race report <clears throat> actually i still got to finish it but I, I was doing my race report you know i'm meeting my uh driving coach tomorrow uh, as well as my engineer to kind of just put barber to bed and then thursday before we fly out i'm going back to the team to prepare for you know this coming weekend because I think you need to be able to have that period to review and you know close the book on Barber, but then you also need that time to prepare, uh, prepare and prep for this coming weekend. So on the tight turnaround, mate, with back-to-back races, you know it, it's not easy. It's not easy for the you know for the drivers. You know that that stiff neck after barber, that's no joke. Uh, that's, you know, incredibly tough, uh, you know, track for sure. And it seems like St. Pete's going to be very hot again. So honestly, the name of the game this week is going to be, uh, you know, good training, good nutrition, good hydration. And then like I, I joked to my engineer at the weekend, I hope he likes me because he's probably going to be spending more time with me than, uh, you know, his wife and his little girl, you know, for the next two or three weeks here. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we all love this time of year. You know, it's busy for sure. But, you know, I would say a traditional week back-to-back is, uh, you know, what I mentioned before. And it'll probably be the same, you know, from St. Pete. The only downside of St. Pete is our flyback uh, Monday, you know, not Sunday night. So, you know, kind of travel rest day on that day. And then just repeat and go again. You know, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a fun time, mate, but it's definitely a lot of stress. And I think people should... Uh, you know, in the moments while they're thinking about how busy it is and stuff is be thinking about a lot of the mechanics and a lot of the, uh, you know, people on the team who don't just get to take Monday off like I did. They're already back in the factory, making sure that we're having as good a weekend as possible in, in St. Pete. So, uh, you know, a lot of people to be grateful and thankful for, you know, and also this, uh, you know, when it is so busy, maybe spare a, 
a quick second of uh, appreciation for them as well. Great point. Um, well, let's get into, uh, we got a couple questions um, from folks on Twitter. Um, after last weekend's race and heading into St. Pete, um, we'll answer a few of these right here. Um, Huck at home asks, uh, with races every weekend for a while, what are the logistics for most teams? Did the cars return to the shop or go to St. Pete uh, and then switch for Speedway cars for Texas? Um, do the do the haulers have to go get the other car? Um, has to be a wild set of logistics in short windows. Uh, it is for sure. Um, <coughs> probably a better question for the team. You know, in some ways, I always have felt that, um, you know, going home, you know, having the ability to go home for everybody is always uh, really nice. I think that um, I'm pretty sure our cars have gone back from uh, Barber to Columbus, get prepped in Columbus, and then make the trip to um, St. Pete, I believe. But... Uh, I I think from leaving St. Pete, they are going straight to Texas. So yeah, it always just uh, always just depends, mate, on um, more factors than what the team ever tell me. But uh, yeah, I think it's just a lot of things that go into that. Are, you know, flight times. You know, the flight's convenient. You know, it's easier to just have everyone in one place and prep the car in like Barber and then go straight to St. Pete. It's um, Logistics of it can sometimes be uh, kind of fun and wild. Yeah. Um, another one here from uh, Alan on Twitter uh, says, Jack, all sessions you seem to be just a slightly off of the front runner, front runners. Is it something that just comes down to setup or were there other problems? And do you think you will be more competitive at St. Pete? Well, I'm hopeful we'll be more competitive in St. Pete. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, as I've already said, I, you know, I felt like we were missing just a little bit in uh, in Alabama. Um, we we tried a few things to try and find a little extra speed. Uh, you know, not sure if they worked as well as what we were hoping. So um, that's what the post briefing is really going to be more. You know, diving into. Um, you know, just understanding, as I said, you know, what the good and the bad and the ugly was, you know, what corners I was losing time, uh, you know, how, how I could have found that time, you know, what I could have done better, you know, and also what the team could have tried to have done better as well. So, um, yeah, man, I mean, those, those things are always normal. And as any driver will tell you, if you're not the quickest, then, you know, you're working harder to try and be that next time out. And certainly we feel like we've got some work to do uh, if we were going to go back to a, Barber again this season, but um, yeah, I mean, as I've said a couple of times, I mean, got to be competitive, you know, in a competitive field. So it's just down to us to figure out what those differences are and execute them and crack on. Mm -hmm. Question here um, from Tom Blackburn, um, which I can probably take a, a little bit more of a stab at. We just got the ratings from. NBC uh, from Sunday was an average of 921,000 viewers off of uh, Sunday's broadcast combined both with TVs, um, streaming, and folks who were out of home watching some other ways. So his question was, the series, for whatever reasons, continues to have difficulty drawing viewers. Um, wish someone had the answer to how the series become more mainstream. I the one thing, and I've actually pointed it out in a story um, that I posted just a little while ago, you can find it on indiestar.com, talking about the ratings from Sunday. One thing to consider, uh, and I will admit, I don't think I probably knew quite as much just because I was so hyper-focused on IndyCar, is that um, NASCAR was essentially running directly side-by-side -side IndyCar uh, for their Sunday race at Richmond. They threw the green flag at 315, I think IndyCar did so uh, at about 3.45 Eastern time. So you've got two series running directly side by side. Obviously, this is the portion of the year where um, NASCAR is running on Fox instead of NBC. So, you know, had these both been NBC property races, I, I 
imagine that you probably wouldn't have seen something like that with the two series directly competing against each other. But, you know, NASCAR has, as we know, a little bit larger, broader following. I think they averaged uh, 3.3 uh, million viewers and were the most watched um, sport event on TV this weekend. Um, so I think you have to take that into account a little bit. I mean, I think especially with Jimmy joining the series, there's maybe as much crossover between the two series and their fans maybe as ever. Uh, and I think it was kind of just an unfortunate occurrence. Um, certainly if you're IndyCar, you would have liked to have seen a larger number there. The last, um, as I mentioned in that story, uh, each of the last four season openers that have been broadcast on national TV, whether it was NBC or ABC, um, have been above 1 million. They averaged about 2 point or 1.25 million viewers. So you would have liked to see that number up, I think, certainly in a contract year. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessarily a sign that people are down on, on IndyCar. I think we'll have a little bit better idea even off of this St. Pete broadcast this weekend, also on NBC, has a little bit of a crossover between the NASCAR race at Talladega um, where the start of the Talladega race is going to be overlapping the end of IndyCar's race. But hopefully you see that number rise a little bit, um, maybe around 1 1.1, 1 1.2. 1.2 certainly would be good for a, a second race of the year that maybe doesn't quite have the, the anticipation levels of a season opener. So I think we still need to wait a little bit to see. Um, because over the years, I mean, I know last year, Overall, when you take out the 500, IndyCar was up, I think, 2 or 3% in what they were able to do ratings-wise at NBC in the first year of their pairing. So um, certainly something to follow this year, but I don't know that it's necessarily something to be you know, overreacting or super worried about. It was, certainly was an interesting thing to note um, and something to keep an eye on for the future. Um, we'll get to a couple more short ones here that we had from – Last week that we didn't get to go to um, a question here for Jack from uh, WF1G on Twitter um, asks, Jack, what is the nearest big racing circuit uh, to Bassingham? Oh, nearest big racetrack to me, Cadwell Park. It's uh, predominantly a uh, motorbike track actually uh it's pretty cool uh but also mallory park is kind of close there was one track called rockingham uh donington park extremely close donington probably the biggest one that most people will have heard of and i think donington's so famous because of and senna's wet lap that he did there so uh yeah there's a, there's a decently rich motorsport in history around uh, lincolnshire um, another one from Three Wide Motorsports asks, uh, Jack, what are your three favorite tracks on the IndyCar schedule for this season? Uh, I mean, just ones that I enjoy, you know, being out and driving. Out, I, you know, I love the 500, obviously, but let's just assume that's a given. Um, I do like Indy Road Course. You know, I love being in road america and uh, you know mid ohio has always felt special it's where i got my first win in north america you know it's it's michael's home race and the home race of my shank racing so probably those uh, three but actually i really did enjoy gateway last year as well probably the oval i enjoyed almost the most so um yeah they're probably my uh, probably my top hits and we'll uh, we'll close things off i wanted to get to this one because i think it's going to be uh, particularly newsworthy right now. And I'll take this. Uh, Brian Kelly asked actually last week, um, any update on the sixth Andretti car for the Indy 500 and who mm. driving in that car? Well, um, interesting today that we actually got a uh, word from the St. Pete folks in an email where they were listing all of the media opportunities um, that Andretti will be making an announcement um, in St. Pete on Saturday morning, I believe at 11 a.m. Um, I don't remember the specific phrasing, but I think you can pretty well read between the lines that they will be announcing their Indy 500, their sixth Indy 500 driver um, on Saturday. Uh, as far as who might be driving, 
Um, I don't know anything confirmed. I know the names that have been tossed around range from uh, Oriel Servia to Stefan Wilson, uh, as well as Oliver Askew. Um, I believe it will be one of those three guys, um, which would be, you know, a really cool storyline between any of them, you know, between Oriel and, and Stefan returning to the 500 for the first time in, in a couple years to Oliver getting a, another crack at things after, um, after just one year in the IndyCar series a year ago and, and being the only rookie to lead laps in last year's 500. Um, will be cool to see any of those names pop up, but those were the three that I would uh, keep an eye on um, as, uh, as Andretti uh, Technical Alliance uh, prepares to what it looks like take an, an eighth car uh, and try to, to qualify for the 500, which I know is something that um, has to just be incredibly helpful for you guys, Jack, when you guys are, um, you know, trying to pull together as much data as possible to, to be uber competitive in that race there on May 30th. Oh, man, so it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. The only thing that can be hard is, you know, I think we mentioned this before, maybe when we were just chatting, but, you know, having so many cars is almost you don't have time to uh, analyze all the data from everybody. Uh, you know, so sometimes it can actually be um, it's, it's always great. It just requires more people to analyze everything that's going on. But, you know, I mean, if, if, if Andretti or Squad were able to run a sixth car there, I mean, plus me and plus Elio, I mean, that's uh, eight cars, you know, in the field for, you know, my Shang racing. You know, and I direct the Autosport affiliated cars. I mean, that's a that's a wildly high number. So uh, I hope everything goes smoothly. Um, we'll wait and see who the driver is. Yeah. Um, well, I think that is it for us on this week's edition of IndyCar Weekly. Um, keep those questions coming. Uh, I know it's going to be a, another uh, potentially wild, exciting weekend of racing at St. Pete's, uh, practice begins on Friday with another practice Saturday and qualifying that day as well. All of that can be found on Peacock, uh, with Sunday's race broadcast. Uh, I, I believe it, the broadcast starts at noon. I think the green flag is scheduled for, somewhere around 1230, all of those times Eastern, of course, that race will be on NBC. Um, so you can get another chance to watch IndyCar um, for the second of three straight weekends again on NBC. Um, keep an eye out for how Meyer Shank Racing does uh, in this weekend's race, as Jack mentioned, um, started fifth and, and certainly looked like it had a, a car to potentially put on the podium. So excited to see how you guys do um, and see if we, you know, either, uh, a, uh, somewhat predictable winner at this track. Um, Scott Dixon's been close so many years. Uh, Joseph Newgarden has won it several times as, uh, Will Power, I think is at least won it once. Pato was fairly competitive and close there last year. So it should be another really exciting race, um, for, uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Um, and certainly again, great thanks to, to Jack for, for joining me again this week. 